Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin Molino Bailey. I am the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner at Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we have two very special guests, Dr. Elizabeth Sizak and Dr. Jack Roselle. Dr. Roselle is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Adjunct Professor of Law at University of Pittsburgh. He is the Medical Director for Resolve Crisis Services, a community crisis program which delivers more than 125,000 services each year and is the immediate past president of the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry. Dr. Sizak oversees Resolve Crisis Services, Western Psychiatric Hospital Psychiatric Services, WPH Psych Care Plus Admissions, Beaver County Crisis, Mobile Mental Health Therapy, WPH Psych Consult Liaison Program, and WPH Safety Department. She has provided over 30 lectures and presentations on a variety of topics related to motivational interviewing, crisis intervention, trauma, and leadership. In addition to serving as a visiting and adjunct professor professor to local universities, she serves on the Emergency Department Advisory Board and the Capacity Management Committee for Inpatient Psychiatric Bed Management. Thank you both so much for being here with us uh, this week on the Barrier Breakdown. Could you share with us and our listeners a little bit about um, Resolve? Sure. So Resolve is Allegheny County and Western Psychiatrics Partnership crisis services. We have a multitude of departments under one roof who all strive to do the same thing, divert folks from hospitalization and try to provide immediate crisis intervention care and support. We have a phone crisis service, which is just as you understand it, people call in, they ask for help. Uh, Something as simple as I just need to talk today and something as serious as I think I'm gonna take my own life, somebody else's and I need immediate help. We also have mobile crisis teams who operate in pairs and go out into the community. They meet you wherever you are in Allegheny County. We have done interventions in vehicles, we've done interventions uh, in alleyways, we've done interventions in homes. They do the same service that our phones do. They assess, they try to diffuse a situation. If somebody calls us at a 10, I mean, we're really hoping we can leave them at a nine. Sometimes that's a big success. We have a walk-in residential program that's uh, at the same location. And the walk-in program is just that. You can walk in, walk out at any time. There is no appointment. You come in, you let us know what is going on, what the crisis may be for that day, and our team works with you to identify maybe coping skills you already have that you didn't know. We try to uncover resources and strengths so that ultimately we can get you back out into the community. If your crisis extends beyond a a 24-hour need, we have a residential component to that program. We do have 14 beds, so people can stay. Uh, Once our physicians and clinicians identify there's criteria for that person, 
We may keep you up to 72 hours. It could be a maximum of 10 days. It really depends because every crisis looks different. Uh, Resolve is really a, a valuable resource in the community. There's not much quite like that. There was nothing like it when we first started it. And truly, we get to see people in their most vulnerable moments, potentially on the worst day of their life. And we get to do that work. And we work with you to try to keep you safe in your home. And again, try to maximize the coping skills and the strengths that you already have. And to build on that, you know, we're really built around this core idea that that individual, that person, they define their own crisis. Um, the traditional psychiatric emergency model, and this is a little reductionist, it's like you got to be this lethal to ride the ride. You know, if you're suicidal enough, if you're homicidal enough, if you're impaired enough, great, we'll admit you. Otherwise, you know, here's a list of resources, but by good luck back to the community. And Resolve and, and programs like ours are, are really about finding yes. You know, that someone presents and says, I need help with blank. And our response is either, you know what, we have a lot to help with blank, or, you know what, let's figure out a way to help you with blank, right? That, that may not have been part of what we're thinking we're going to do in the first place, but guess what, we want to find a way to help you out. Not to replace any of the great services that are already out there, uh, but to make sure that we can be a, a good uh, pathfinder to help people get to the right resources. And with the ongoing pandemic, can you tell us what changes or what you've been seeing as far as mental health crises uh, and suicidality with relation to uh, the public? That's a great question, because what we're noticing is a huge demand uh, in just behavioral health. And then the severity level, at least from an outpatient practice like ours, uh, it's just been dramatic, the change. And so, yeah, what have you seen and what advice do you have to clinicians and groups out there about you know, their approach and maybe how to influence their care? I'm sure Dr. Rizzo has a lot to say on this. I saw him get situated in the chair to give you a nice lengthy answer. I'll, I'll just preface though that, yes, there's been some change and at the same time, people need help and the mental health system can be tough to navigate. And so we have steadily responded to calls both from our mobile and phone services, as well as our walk-in residential services. I think for folks who are feeling disconnected or were feeling disconnected prior to the pandemic, of course, that only exacerbated those feelings. That isolation, the depression, the anxiety of the unknown. And I think while we don't get a ton of calls that say, I'm anxious about COVID, we get a ton of calls saying, I'm feeling anxious and I don't know why. I'm feeling lonely and I'm not sure what to do with this. And I think our job is to try to unwrap that package. When you're in crisis, you don't always know how to ask for exactly what it is you need. And we really pride ourselves on that's okay because we all have needs, we all have struggles and we will work with you to maybe figure out what is at the core of that. And, and to Jack's point, help be a pathfinder and maybe bridge you to the right service. This is a disaster unlike any other uh, in modern history. Uh, and so much of what we know about trauma and so much of what we know about community disaster response is single bad event, you know, immediate recovery, you know, get people out of the collapsed building, get people to the hospital, reunite families, and then we sort of move on and pick up the pieces of our lives. Um, this is prolonged, it's chronic, it's ambiguous, it waxes and wanes. Um, some parts of the country are 
decimated uh, some parts of the country. It hit much later. It hit in different ways. And behind all of this has been a lot of uncertainty. And, and uncertainty drives a lot of fear when there's mixed messaging, especially from you know, the people that we'd want to be, you know, our public health communicators, it, it, it adds a lot to this. And so, yeah, as Liz said, people aren't necessarily picking up the phone and said, I'm stressed out about coronavirus, but they're saying, my sleep is terrible. I'm so stressed out. I can't focus. Or I'm cold because I haven't had a paycheck and I, I can't pay, you know, the, the heating bill. Or I, I'm about to, you know, lose my housing because all these housing protections are, you know, so hard to track. You know, I don't have income. I'm worried about my kid. I can't do my job while I'm, you know, the, the co-teacher. You know, all this other stuff is, is what people are reaching out about. Now, it's interesting. There's been a lot of chatter um, about what's happening with suicide. And there have been isolated and very focused reports that in some very specific areas and some very specific groups, uh, largely the groups that already were carrying, you know, tremendous burdens of, of the, you know, the social determinants of health and things like that, where we have seen increased presentations related to suicidality nationwide. But here's the thing. Nationally, so far, we don't really have great data. And, and the few places where we do have good data says that suicide rates are level, if not decreased. And historically, when we look at, um, you know, pandemic incidents like this over the past, you know, 100 plus years, we don't actually see increases in suicide rates during these events, even though the psychosocial stressors are um, horrific. I'll just add that one thing we did learn and we're continuing to learn is people want to see humans in front of them. <laughs> they want a connection. I think there's been a big push for tele. I know the country is figuring out remote work or some hybrid version of that. Our patients, our consumers, this community, they crave connection and it's comforting. And I'm really proud, I know Jack is proud as well, that Resolve has been able to continue to stand during this and to continue yeah. to provide service. It's incredibly important. And our consumers made that very well known. We wanna see you. We want, we want you in our home. We wanna to come to your building. Uh, connecting virtually via Zoom doesn't really do it for them. Yeah, and even though, you know, across the broader field of mental health, I mean, we've seen expansion and extension into teleservices, the like of which I couldn't have imagined, you know, 15 months ago. Um, but, you know, one of the things is, again, we, we do crisis work, right? People call us on the worst day of their lives for help. And it turns out, completely unsurprisingly in hindsight, that on the worst day of your life, uh, one of the things that doesn't help is trying to figure out how to install a new damn app on your phone. Uh, this is not a great you know, approach to getting through the crisis. So yeah, again, that face-to-face, that, -face, that personal touch is, is so vital. One of the interesting things I think resolved for myself and many others, it's oftentimes we have your cards in our desks, we have the phone numbers written down, we know how to pass it off. You know, from your perspective, where do you think it would be helpful uh, from the reverse, what do you think the the outpatient practitioners in the community could be supportive of Resolve? Uh, my experience has been it's more one way uh, during during uh, these significant times. But I wondered, do you have any insight where you think a little bit more collaborative or a different approach in reverse would be helpful? I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities where we could enhance that collaboration. And I, I appreciate the question. I think one of the things that we really value is 
rapport and history of information. So it's really common for us to call. I've done it myself. I have called a provider and on the voicemail is my number, our, you know, our number for resolve. And I was like, oh, geez, if that's the, I'm, I'm the resolve. So I would probably, um, if I'm in crisis, need to reach out and that's certainly fine. However, there is value in somebody who knows you. We do try to partner with providers, um, community treatment teams to join us on those interventions so that we have some more information and the consumer doesn't have to be the only historian of what's going on. Because again, when you're in crisis, it's really hard sometimes to answer a million questions, to repeat information. We certainly don't want to re-traumatize our patients either by having to ask them really difficult and painful things. So to have a provider assist us, support us, and be present in that engagement only enhances the service for the consumer and family. Yeah, I, again, accessibility, communication, um, certainly, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, lots of outpatient providers are getting lots and lots more referrals. Any, you know, accessibility to those outpatient services is great. We want to help people connect to, you know, resources that are a good fit for them, that are close to them. Um, you know, and then the other thing I'll say is, you know, we do a couple hundred services every single day. And if we get it right 99% of the time, that means couple times a day, we, we messed up and we want to hear about it. We want to figure out what went wrong and, and, and how we can get it better next time. Okay. No, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, I think feedback both ways is helpful. And so I appreciate kind of the feedback uh, on how the, on the, these outpatient practitioners can collaborate. So I think that that's great. What are unique ways you're helping people with loneliness? Because I think I see that in my own office. You know, I tell people, uh, I'm pretty frank with them, they get the hell out of the house, follow CDC guidelines, but go connect uh, I come up with my own ways. How are you guys dealing with uh, helping people connect in, in this very isolating time? I think there's a lot of answers for that. And, and it's also extremely individual, right? It's, de it's dependent on each person and what they might feel most comfortable with. I certainly think at the beginning of this pandemic, when you could go outside and take a walk, that was helpful. It became like a mini vacation. Uh, and I think just any sort of exercise you can do, any sort of routine you can still engage in getting dressed, getting out of the pajamas, whatever that might be for what your day-to-day -day looks like, I think is really important. And as much as we stress connection, so we would encourage people, call us if you're feeling lonely, use a peer support warm line if you're feeling lonely. Uh, PSAN is a great resource. I think too, knowing when to disconnect, right? Knowing when to disconnect from, from media, from the newspaper, from you know, not reading every single story or looking up every single statistic on COVID and all the symptoms and if the vaccination's coming out and when, because it consumes us. And so I think it's not just about connection, it's about what type of connection is gonna be most useful to you. Um, you know, what you consume matters. And I think we've, we've really tried to help people think of different ways to do that instead of our normal, let me go on the internet uh, or let me read through the news or, or pop on the TV. Yeah. Again, you know, amongst bad things to be doing in a crisis, doom scrolling, right? Um, but yeah, the, if we could change the messaging that we started off a year ago, the social distancing, eh, absolutely no. We, physical distancing, yes. Social connection, social strengthening, um, you know, use social media for social engagement, not, not for trying to find factual information. Uh, you know, use news for those sort of brief 
you know, I, I need a little bit of an information, need a little bit of an update, not for that continuous background noise. And, you know, really sort, sort of moderate some of those toxic things and find times to celebrate the small wins and, and build in those small positive activities, even if it's like, hey, you know what, once a week or, or you know, once every other day, I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to reach out to a relative, a friend, someone who I may, maybe I talk to all the time, maybe I haven't talked to in a while to say, hey, how you doing and check in. One thing that comes up, unfortunately, we just haven't had the pandemic and you highlighted somewhat the economics. We've also had a lot of social injustice issues occur and politics that sometimes can be more impactful maybe to some uh, some Americans than others. And so I think of my, uh, you know, my fellow neighbors who are of color. Is there any unique situations or things to be uh, aware of as clinicians uh, for our unique neighbors who are of a color that you can uh, maybe give us some advice on? I mean, certainly like you, we have watched events unfold throughout this country uh, in waves. And we have had conversations with staff at Resolve about that so that we can ensure we're impacting our consumers in a helpful and productive way. I think ultimately we serve an entire community and everybody is unique. Everybody has an experience, maybe some packed in trauma. Many groups feel marginalized in this country. And, and simply, I think being aware of that first, and then second, asking, <laughs> asking questions. How are we gonna be able to be most helpful? What will not help? We wanna make sure we are walking a line where we're a useful resource. We don't wanna be a hindrance. We do work very closely with the police at Resolve. That, that's a reality for us. And so we've had many dialogues with the county and amongst each other about how to do that in a safe and purposeful way for our entire community. And I think that's an ongoing dialogue. We have a, there's a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn. And I think, so while we wanna disconnect from some things, there, there's value in reading what's going on in this country and how it impacts you personally and professionally so that you can deliver quality service. I think the concept I come to over and over again is, you know, the cultural competence. <laughs> Yay, I'm a competent mental health professional. Eh, cultural humility. You know, how, how do I understand the meaning of your background and your experience to you and, and find the balance of that individualized assessment, that individualized understanding? Balance, again, with the idea that it, it's not the, the responsibility of you know, the minoritized people to educate me as a privileged person about their experience and, you know, their values and what's important. And so, so trying to, to find that right balance. Um, and sometimes, you know, we, we talk about, you know, th these tough conversations, these awkward conversations. The reality, you know, is that medicine has a long history of white supremacy and racism. Um, and psychiatry has a long history of white supremacy and racism. And guess what? I have no evidence whatsoever that emergency psychiatry is any different. Uh, and we actually, we know from the entire process, it, it can be a big factor. You know, it, if I have chest pain and I, I have a heart attack and my wife calls 911, there's a really good chance that a paramedic's going to show up. They're going to get me to the right ER. They're going to get me to the cath lab and blah, 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 blah. If I have a manic episode, if I have a psychotic break, if uh, you know I'm having PTSD flashbacks, uh, police may be that first responder. Okay, so again, we, we've we've brought armed people to the front door 
just as if we'd ordered a pizza for a person in crisis, possibly suicidal crisis, very high risk. And now there's a risk that my mental illness, um, that my crisis, that, that, that my poverty, that, that my social stressors can become criminalized. There's a possibility I might get arrested. There's a possibility there would be use of force uh, or that I could even be killed. And even though that's rare, that's a real thing. And that's something that people living with mental illness and, and the loved ones of people with mental illness often have in the back of their mind when they're trying to figure out how do I help my loved one and, and how ill do they need to be before I'm willing to accept some of those risks. And when you're uh, a person of color, family of color, that equation shifts yet again. And so that's, that's again, that's something we've got to be very sort of humble about and very thoughtful about. And it's a conversation we're having here at Resolve. It's a conversation we're having nationally. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work with national groups, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, about sort of how do we think about, you know, what are our interventions for those immediate risk cases? Um, because, yeah, we're, we're a little bit more mindful and thoughtful about some of the ramifications. And no matter what, if you're in crisis, um, to, to be transported to a hospital by law enforcement may be the critical necessary thing to get you life-saving help, but it's really hard to, to start that road to recovery um, handcuffed in a police vehicle. Uh, it's a really, really painful way to begin that. And, um, you know, what we see in crisis, we never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, we've had a crisis for a while. We've recognized the crisis a little bit better more recently. Uh, and t t time for us to really think about what our options are to address that. Do you have any advice, advice for our listeners who may be clinicians uh, throughout the country where they live in a county where there is not 24 uh, seven crisis help for, for people? Do you have any kind of words of, of wisdom for them or anything you could share regarding that that could be helpful? move to Pittsburgh. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are ridiculously well-resourced here in Allegheny County. You know, the, the joke, and I don't like this joke, is, you know, you can throw a rock, you can't throw a rock in Pittsburgh without hitting a psychiatrist in the back of the head. Don't like that joke. Um, but it's true. We got lots of resources. And yet still, you know, if I needed help right away, if a loved one of mine needed help right away to get into outpatient therapy, to get into an outpatient program, there's hurdles and, and, and there's barriers. What we don't have now, but what we're what we're about to have nationally is a, a much improved crisis line network. Uh, lots of people are familiar with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the 1-800-273-TALK network. Uh, Resolve is one of about 180 member uh, network centers. Um, by July 2022, all the major carriers will be mapping 988 onto the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. And in line with this, there's a, a, a broad strategic effort coming out of SAMHSA um, to, to create comprehensive crisis services that frankly will look a lot like what we're lucky enough to have here in Pittsburgh. Uh, as Dr. Everett at SAMHSA talks about, it's someone to talk to, phone services, someone to come to you, mobile services, someplace to go, walk-in and residential, and finding a way to, to, to build out those programs nationwide and knowing that what scales really nicely in Pittsburgh uh, may not scale as well in rural Pennsylvania or you know rural Utah. Yeah. And, and by the way, one of the great things about what we do at Resolve is there's no charge to the individual. 
So no one has to be thinking, you know, I need help, but I don't have money for a copay, but I already have debt. You just have to think, I need help, or I think I might need help, or I think someone I care about might need help. You pick up the phone, you call, we're going we're gonna to be with you in that crisis, and we're going to help get you through it. Wonderful. Well, thank you both very much for being here with us today. Our listeners, um, I'm sure, will find this very helpful. So we really appreciate the information and the insight, and we appreciate you for taking the time with us today. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's been a delight. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week, and we look forward to seeing you again on The Barrier Breakdown. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast. Check out our website at cbicenterforeducation.com for more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events.